Welcome to Active Activism, part of the Fem On Collective. On this show, my guests share the causes important to them, how they became involved, and why we should be active in our activism. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Active Activism. One of the numerous ways that And I Thought Ladies support me is by introducing me to people who are doing great things. As such, I have them to thank for today's guest. Casey Rogers is an author and financial specialist here to discuss the growing link between financial and domestic abuse. Welcome, Casey. Please introduce yourself and tell listeners what you do. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited. I do so many different things, but primarily for my day job, I am the financial director of a small uh, nonprofit. Uh, It's actually a dance company. (laughs) And I love my work. I love you know, interacting with the people that I work with. Um, But on um, other notes, I I am a writer. um, And the things that I write about generally, you know, have uh, themes that I'm very passionate about. And one of them is financial abuse. So I have managed to weave that into a new book called The Color of Frost. And um, it's overwhelmingly apparent in my memoir, which is called Our Better Selves. So those are two of the things that I do. But, um, you know, I do lots of different things. I'm just one of those people that likes to get my hands in lots of different projects. I can understand that. Mm hmm. Well, I aim to feature advocacy at all levels on this series. The purpose of the show is to bring awareness to the causes important to my guests and to inspire listeners to be more active in their activism. So before we dive in, tell me, do you consider yourself to be an activist? Absolutely. I have been an activist for as long as I can remember, Uh, primarily because I felt like there was so much more that I could do in my life, um, but I didn't have the opportunities simply because of my gender. Mm. I'll give you an example. I wrote a musical when I, I started when I was in, in my 20s, and I figured out that I couldn't make a living acting. <laughs> so I decided, <laughs> well, if I write, I can play all the parts in my head. So, but I wrote the book, I wrote the music, and I wrote the lyrics. And at that time, I was workshopping it in Manhattan. Um, I was working in the commercial film industry by day and workshopping my musical at night. There was one woman director on Broadway at that Mm -hmm. point, one. And I felt really stymied because... I didn't have the access to a lot of, um, you know, venues that might pay attention to me if I were a different gender. Mm. So um, I started really paying attention when I was in my early 20s to the differences in the way that life hands um, different types of people, different opportunities. And plus, I have girl-boy twins. 
and just seeing the differences when they were little, you know, all the time. All other things are equal, right? They're the same age. They're growing up in the same household. Yes. Parents, same, same economical status, but different genders, different genders and different opportunities and different uh, ways that they were able to view the world because so much of the world reflected my son. When you have characters on children's programming, it's overwhelmingly male. You know, Thomas the Tank Engine, you know, I think there was like one or two like little characters that were female. The Smurfs. (laughs) Yeah, yes. And, and, you know, he was not inclined to watch things like Dora the Explorer or Madeline or any of the things that my daughter might be inclined to. But even as they got older, look at the Western canon of literature that is overwhelmingly written by, you know, European men of white, you know, heritage. And it didn't reflect so much of my environment. So these are all things that have been at the forefront of my mind. So even though I haven't been out there um, being an official activist, I have passionately done whatever I can to bring focus on these issues. Well, you did mention that much of your work features financially abusive relationships, and it's no doubt in part to your personal experience with that. For those who don't understand that concept, will you please share what it means and the dangers involved? Financial abuse is used in a relationship to maintain power and control. So when a woman is in, um, whether it's domestic abuse, whether it has to do with, um, you know, emotional abuse or any other kind of abuse, when you limit a person's resources financially by either preventing them from working in the capacity, you know, like somebody might, you know, start calling somebody's workplace Mm -hmm. or prevent them from getting to work or manipulating finances, holding out on debt, you know, keeping secrets. Um, A lot of that I experienced personally. I had supported my husband's career. He was a filmmaker, you know, director, producer, and he always worked freelance, but I always worked a full-time job. And we didn't have children for the first 12 years of our marriage. And when we did have children, everything changed between us because I quit my full-time job. And and the things that I encountered were suddenly, you know, like every dime was scrutinized. You know, I had no agency in our financial decisions anymore because I wasn't making the bulk of the income. And long after he passed away, I was left with debt. I was left with medical bills. I was left, you know, unfortunately his attitude was, I don't want you profiting from my death. So I'm not going to get out life insurance. So when he passed away, we were left penniless. And I went from earning a six figure income in my, you know, thirties and forties to basically living off of his social security and, you know, food stamps. So 
financial abuse basically is about the way that finances are weaponized to keep a woman in a relationship. Um, and in 99% of domestic abuse cases, there is also an element of financial abuse because financial abuse creates barriers against a person leaving that relationship. Well, thank you for that. I am curious, how did your memoir help you unravel the events that you experienced? You just used the perfect word. You used the word unraveled. And I did not know I was financially abused. Mm. I didn't even know I was really abused. I started writing my book because of the pain of trying to sort through being in a relationship that had squandered my self-esteem, that had, you know, really decimated me as an individual and trying to sort through um, the, the experience of wanting to leave a relationship. And I found out when I was getting ready to leave, I had just gotten a job that would pay me enough money so that I could support myself and the kids. Um, and we found out he was dying. He mm. had cancer. He was given two weeks to live. And he had been walking around with a broken neck that had eaten like a tumor had eaten through his vertebrae. So here I am trying to leave a relationship and balance his needs because he was the father of my children. Right. And one thing people don't understand about being in these kinds of relationships is that they're not always at the same level in terms of abuse. You know, sometimes an abuser can be kind and loving and generous and then things start to fall away again. And then, you know, it, it hits you again. And again, not always physically, but you know, those attitudes and, right. and everything. So you get lulled into- There's a cycle. Yes, there is a cycle. And it wasn't until I sat down and I wrote my memoir that I kind of figured it all out. And it was because of a friend of mine that was reading through it. And she was like, you don't use the word abuse once in this book. Wow. Like, well, you know, we were just in a dysfunctional relationship. I called it everything but abuse because to me, abuse was somebody hitting somebody else. Abuse was different than what I experienced. And, be, you know, like I just felt, you know, I, I felt if I was calling myself abused, it some way diminished who I was mm -hmm. because of the myths that are involved with that term. So your word unraveling is perfect because really writing the memoir showed me how often these things occurred. I mean, I looked through journals and emails and all these other documents that I had from the past and I'm like, holy catfish, it's right there on the page. But I didn't see it because it was so slow and, and incremental that it wasn't until 
I had a chance to step back and look at it that I, I, I finally knew what it was all about. So, yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> it is, it is, but I'm not alone. A lot of women experience that. So what is it that prompted you to make the leap from nonfiction to fiction? Because I'm wacky. (laughs) (laughs) Because I love a challenge and I wanted an opportunity to present certain elements in my book. Um, My book, it takes place in 1974. Which one are you referencing here? Uh, um, The Color of Frost, the book of fiction. And it takes place in 1974. And my main character is a very complex individual. She's depressed. She's had a lot of trauma in her life. She's adopted. And she experiences financial abuse at the hands of her husband. And back then, it was, to me, I, I wanted to have a reminder of how far we've come. And that's why I said it back then. Because back then, A woman couldn't get a mortgage on her own. A woman couldn't even open up a bank account sometimes without a man's permission. Um, A loan, no way. Um, In 1984, I was again working full time. My husband freelanced um, and I walked into a bank to deposit my first paycheck from a job. And I was told that he had to be the first name on the bank account. This is 1984. Because he has a penis. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly, because he has a penis. And this, this is not that long ago. I know. And this is what people don't remember about the, the history of the finance. You know, again, what was it? It was financial abuse. It was maintaining power and control over women's lives. They, you know, it's like, how, how do you um, live your life when, I mean, the other reason that was so important that year, it was the year after Roe v. Wade was, was you know, passed. And we also had a president that was, you know, we had to resign. So there are all these historical factors. Back that to tricky, right? <laughs> with, yes, exactly. You know, Nixon, my book opens with Nixon's resignation. It, it opens in August of 1974. And I purposely centered the character and all of these things to show the impact of her losing her you know, like her home, you know, she didn't lose the building she lived in, but she was forced to move into an apartment in the building because of her husband's actions. And so I purposely centered a lot of these things and writing it as a fictional story. I was also able to bring in other characters uh, that were impacted by things that seemingly we thought that they had changed and we had broken down these barriers and now all of a sudden they're being res- you know re-erected to prevent us from having you know the 
the opportunities that we, you know, fought so hard for. Sounds familiar. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And we're back to the cycle too. Yes. Yeah. And it, you know, I could have said it in the 1920s. I mean, there are several periods of history that I could have said it in, but because I graduated from high school in 1974, there was something I didn't have to do too much research, you know? So yeah. And it, and it works as a piece of fiction. I was able to bring in a lot of different characters and one of the main characters, um, you know, she writes letters that the other character finds so I could show, you know, like things about the depression and, and what went, you know, forward in her life. And the best part of the book is actually the epilogue because it's basically a manifesto about how we get (laughs) over this mess, you know, like the main character and her growth throughout the entire book and what she experiences and her personal growth and how financial matters factor into that really is all about showing us a way forward and what we have to do. And it it connects with something else that you said. We may not all work in the same industry, but there's so many connections between our goals. And unfortunately, because we're all out there and we're all working on these things individually, we don't have the power um, that we would have if we were all connected and we were all advocating um, through our strength and our vision for a better future for everyone. Um, So I was able to do that in the epilogue. (laughs) (laughs) That is a huge reason that the Femon Collective works because it's the five of us working on our own projects individually and supporting each other. And then we have an extensive network of supporters, other podcasters, the Comics in Motion Network, Genuine Chit Chat, Spider Dan, and the Secret Boars. We just have all of these people who are supporting us, even though this isn't their stick. Yeah. Yeah. And but that's- we know we're all stronger together. That's, that's exactly what it is. Like, there was a um, speech that Natalie Portman gave in 2018. And it was about women filmmakers. And I use some of that speech, because that's exactly what she's saying. She's advocating that we all work together. And the strength of, you know, like the one candle burning, might not shed a lot of light, but all together, you know, we can illuminate, yes. you know, so much. So I, I, you know, I kind of use that a little. <laughs> <laughs> you recognized brilliance and you. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> well, that sounds like an excellent yeah. segue to what brings you here today. You're here to share the I Know Why She Stayed initiative. What is this project and how was it conceived? So I started doing a little film um, and thought about doing a documentary called I Know Why She Stayed. And the connection there was when I was uh, young, I was like 12 years old, my, my father had moved us from our home to upstate New York. And we lived in a duplex 
And I frequently heard this noise on the other side of the wall. And the family had like five, you know, kids. There were four boys. I thought it was just the boys roughhousing. Well, come to find out, it was the neighbor beating his wife every night. And my 12-year-old mind said, well, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just get her five kids and go? Because that's the mentality. It's a logical question, especially for a 12-year-old. But unfortunately, it still persists. It does. Most people, when I was going through what I went through, like before I wrote the memoir, but after I finally started revealing some of the things that had transpired, that was the question everybody asked me. Well, if it was so bad, why'd you stay? Well, I couldn't, I could, I had no resources to leave. I had no working vehicle. I had a knee injury that prevented me from, you know, taking on certain kinds of jobs. Um, it was during the economic downturn, you know, it was like in the aftermath of the 2008, um, you know, recession, there was a host of reasons why, but people couldn't see that. It was almost like it's like a trap. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I called it. I know why she stayed because I finally understood it's often, you know, the case where unless we're in the same situation, we don't have the perspective necessary to, you know, see the other person's side. And I finally got it. And so I started putting this together and I started doing a lot of research because I was writing my memoir um, during the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic. And I started doing a lot of research. And the thing that I kept on seeing over and over again was the increase in violence, like globally against women. And there were certain papers that I started reading, you know, wondering, well, gee, what's going on here? And um, there there was like this uh, professor from Brown University, and I'm going to blank on her name. I think it's Anna. Azar or Izar, and she wrote a paper that talked about the wage gap and domestic violence. And there hadn't been any studies about this. And her, you know, like study basically connects wages and like the decrease. Initially, it was the decrease in violence. But through the, you know, the pandemic, it had increased. So I started saying, okay, well, what are the things that pull this all together? And really, one of the ways that men are able, you know, like the, you know, we can't deny that we're still in a patriarchal society. And one of the ways that certain groups are able to maintain power or maintain power and control is to control us financially. And when I started looking at the numbers, I was just gobsmacked. I'm glad you're sitting down, or at least I hope you are because you might fall. (laughs) When I tell you this, there are two things 
that I can tell you, you know, when you say, okay, women, women earn, you know, 84 cents to the dollar that men earn. That's one thing. When you add it up, that's approximately $12,000 a year, which would make a big difference. The other factor is that when you add up all of the women in, you know, like that we have in the States, amount there, like there's, I think it's called uh, the Partnership for Women and Families, Calcul calculated that the total amount is $1.6 trillion that women are not getting in their pocketbooks due to the gender wage gap. And this allows, um, you know, it, it, like think about the fact that in our political system alone, 80% of the people that win office win because they've raised the most money. We have to deal with the pink tax. We have to deal with the fact that non-custodial parents are in arrears as of 2021, I think it is, $118 billion. Oof. Do you have this dynamic in the country where women are expected to work, we're expected to afford childcare so we can go off and, and have our jobs, where the primary caregivers for the most part, but we have money being taken out of our lives because an employer doesn't feel that a woman should be making the same wages as a man. And again, you said it perfectly because I always compare the analogy that if my son and my daughter were working for the same identical company in the same job, doing the same amount of work and at the same level, she would get paid $12,000 less a year because she doesn't have a penis. And that's discrimination. And for me, the thing that we have to change is we have to change the narrative. We can't call it the gender wage gap. That is too polite. We have to call it what it is. It's the systemic financial abuse of women. That's what it is. And I started looking into, okay, well, here's the problem. Well, what are the solutions? Because what we're doing doesn't work. We've had, an, you know, like legislation passed even just recently about, you know, like fair pay and all this other stuff. It doesn't work because unless you hold an employer accountable, they're, they're going to just get away with doing it. Just like, you know, there are lots of corporations that practice wage theft. Um, and we underfund organizations like the, what is it? The equal, uh, equal opportunity. I don't know. I don't remember what it is. It's, I think the acronym is EEOC or something, but you know, like there are cases that are brought against certain employers, but that's like what a woman has to go through in order to file a claim often makes it prohibitive. Right. So my initiative is about several things. It's about awareness 
and making people aware of how bad the situation really is. It's, it's about financial awareness and making women, you know, primarily women, um, to educate them so that they have financial literacy and they understand, you know, like, gee, I don't have enough money for, you know, investments or savings. I might have that if I had that extra $12,000 a year. And it's, it's about connecting people, but it's also about trying to promote and get people on board with a solution from Iceland, which they had, you know, they've changed their, or challenged their um, employers to, they have to basically submit documents to allow the government to know that they are in compliance. So it's on the employer. And I think they've, they've closed the gap significantly and, and they have to report, like, I think it's like 25 employees or more. So it's on them to show that they, they are in compliance where our companies have absolutely no compliance at all. So, so the initial step is to ask people to write in and tell me what $12,000 would mean to them so that I can start putting things together to show people and tell their stories. Because if, because you know the power of storytelling. Um, I, and I think that would be a very, very effective way to um, start the initiative, to collect all of these stories, to give people a voice. I started doing it with domestic abuse, but a lot of people don't want to tell you their story because it's too painful. Mm -hmm. But if we connect, if we talk about financial abuse, it's a way for them to tell their stories that unravel it for them the way that, you know, my memoir unraveled it for me. They can see the connection. And I'm hoping that I can have enough letters out there to, you know, like maybe present them, you know, to Congress or whatever. Like I'm just starting but I think the steps are all there. It's those, you know, components and also starting to work with other organizations that want to do the same thing. Um, you know, we have, we all have the same goals, but a domestic abuse shelter is dealing with the aftermath. I want to, I want to stop it. Yeah. You want to so, work on prevention. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as the study showed that Anna Azar did, the, um, the numbers went significantly down the more women had financial stability. But that financial stability is being held hostage by corporations that refuse to pay women equitably. That's a hard word to say. <laughs> So that's what the initiative is about. We launch on um, April 15th. 
and that's tax day. And that was purposely done because <laughs> it is a burden and where we pay more taxes. Like I thought about the pink tax and, you know, share with, we, share with listeners what the pink tax is. So the pink tax is basically products and services that women have to pay taxes on that men don't, you know, it's, it's like, like feminine hygiene products. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that we're, we're taxed for those products and, you know, like, unless, you know, you have something unusual, most of us have to pay them for a long time. And, and, you know, it, it's like, it's an, another way to impact our purchasing power and our overall income, because when we have to keep on paying for those things and be taxed on them, we have less money. And again, we're, we're living in, you know, unfortunately a, a time and place where money has so much influence over our politics and legislation and the way that we can navigate our lives. And it's, you know, we, we see all of our rights being stripped away from us. And that's another reason why I <laughs> centered the color of frost in the 1970, you know, the seventies. So we could see what we want and how, you know, this is being erased. We're being, you know, it's being eroded. Um, so you know, like the pink tax is just another way. So I kind of thought it was a little cheeky, but <laughs> it's like April 15th, tax day. <laughs> That's all right. Whatever gets the word out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So where can people send their letters? Um, I have somebody working on a website for me just for I know why she stayed but if anybody wants to send me a letter directly they can send it to casey at caseyrogers.com I do have a website out there to basically you know sell my books which are for sale and they're really good (laughs) (laughs) no no I'm, I'm really very very proud of you know my writing and my writing especially for the color of frost really seems to be reaching a lot of people um, in terms, you know, it's, it's quite it's a okay story, to be proud of <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am very, very proud of the it. The writing I'm, bug bit you. It's all right. I get yeah. it. <laughs> um, so, you know, anybody that wants to contact me can contact me through my website um, and they can send a letter Um, And again, the whole idea is to emphasize what somebody would do with $12,000. If they had that amount of money, what, you know, what kind of impact would it make in their life? Would it be something where, you know, they'd be able to get a car repaired or put money away for an emergency or God forbid, you know, like put something away for the future because so many women just can't. I mean, I'm one of those women. I have several leaks in my house and faucets. I can't afford to get them fixed. So my water bill, I have to pay more for my water bill because, you know, it's like getting a plumber and changing out everything, you know, it's like, okay, do I drive around in a car that's, you know, like roadworthy or do I deal with the drip, drip, drip? (laughs) So, you know, I think that, telling our stories, showing 
what happens when your finances, when you're constantly worried, am I going to have a situation where I'm not going to be able to pay, you know, um, this past weekend when I was down in Maryland, my wiper blades stopped working. And, you know, I was freaking out because it, it was going to rain. And fortunately, I got home before it did. But I'm like, okay, is oh, how, how many hundreds of dollars is this going to cost me? Fortunately, it wasn't a big deal. It was just a screw. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't but know. That's the kind of... You have to worry about it. <laughs> What's that? That you, you, you could not and that you had to worry about it. Right. Exactly. You, you know, it, it's like the stress of poverty can be overwhelming. I work two jobs and get social security and I still can't make ends meet. It's, it's really hard, you know, especially with inflation. So I feel like if people can hear my story, and other people, you know, other women's stories. I know men are financially abused too. I know this isn't just an issue of men and women. Right, and it's, uh, we haven't even begun to discuss the intersections that differences when race is involved or queerness is involved. You know, it's just, this compounds from that point. Yeah, which is an element that I bring out in the color of frost. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's why I did fiction. <laughs> so I could bring out all right. of these things because you're absolutely right. You know, the impact is just mind boggling. Um, so that's what I hope to accomplish. I hope to get the word out there and have people write me letters. I'm thinking of doing kind of like a little contest so that, you know, there is a reward at the end. It might not be, you know, like a Maserati, but, you know, just something so that people can say, I participated in this and my words made a difference. What can listeners do to help? Um, They can check out my website and they can support my writing and like check out the initiative. But I think the most impactful thing that they could do is tell me their story. If your listeners are out there and they can relate, and it doesn't necessarily have to be something that they're experiencing now. It could be something where, you know, they were, they were going through a divorce and, you know, their husband prevented them from leaving when they wanted to leave because, you know, they had, you know, small children that had to be taken care of. There's so many women that you know, have overcome these obstacles, thank God, but they still have memories of the difficulties of coping with these situations when they didn't have the assets and the financial security. So it doesn't have to necessarily be something that happened a week ago. It could be a memory. I I really appreciate you sharing your advocacy. Is there anything else that you would like to add to help inspire listeners to be active in their activism? Tell your truth. You know, I think so many of us are sometimes afraid to be outspoken because there are forces out there that seem so much more powerful 
and we really, I, I, so many of us just want to go out there and live our lives. We want to be creative. We want to, you know, spend time with our kids and family. And it's unfortunately, you know, it's, it, that's becoming a luxury sometimes, but just speak your truth. And if, if you feel compelled to tell parts of your life that could help somebody else understand that they're not alone, tell your truth. And remind listeners where they can find and support you online. My website is caseyrogers.com and it's Casey with a K. So it's K-A-S-E-Y-R-O-G-E-R-S.com. Well, thank you again, Casey. And thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. This has been Active Activism, part of the Fem On Collective. <laughs>